I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. John Seller on the show today of Wildman. He's the director of sales at Frederick Wildman, based in New York. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm doing fantastic today, Levy. How are you? Good to see you. Good to see you, too. So you're a local boy. You grew up uh, lower Manhattan? I did. Stuyvesant Town, 18th Street and 1st Avenue. And how'd you get into the wine business? You were doing a little bartending for a while? I was, yes. I did for probably more than a little while. You know, that's how those things go. Got out of college, wasn't sure what I wanted to do, and started waiting tables in Westchester County and that turned into bartending and did that on and off for probably eight to ten years you know different places and what what era was that what, what years are we talking about we're talking let's see I graduated from college uh, in the late 80s so that would be the early 90s into the, the late 90s I guess you know what was the scene like back then like people were getting Getting Merlot, getting... Oh. Yeah, Merlot was a big thing back then. <laughs> Everything by the class was Merlot. Everybody was, you know, now it's Malbec everybody's talking about. When people, you know, it's something that's easy for people to say, so. But, you know, I worked at uh, Doral Arrowwood up in Westchester, and there was a guy there who was a... There was sort of a little bit of a subculture of wine there. You know, guys coming out of Johnson & Wales and the Culinary Institute that became beverage managers and were teaching... Teaching about wine, I, I got a wine book from a, a secret Santa one year. And that's sort of, I started to read it, and I started to do all the inventory, you know. Back then, you know, we had to walk 10 miles in the snow to get to the ca cave. <laughs> to the, the, we chiseled it in the... In the bottles in the, of Johnny Walker. Yeah, but at least I could spell. That was, that was the good thing, you know. You had to one-up on the other guy. So they encouraged me to, you know, to study wine more because I, I started to get a little passionate about it. And somebody told me about Windows in the World in their wine class, Kevin's Rally. And so I interviewed with uh, Andrea Immer, who I guess is now is Andrea Robinson, I think. That's Immer Robinson, and, yeah, yeah. She went for the three-name gambit. She did. Okay. So, uh, and I poured the class in order to take it for free, and that's sort of how I got into See, the whole that shows thing. you you're talking to a pro right there. There you go. Um so, and that was actually 93, because that's, in the middle of it was when the first bombing occurred. Um, so we were sort of left in limbo for a few weeks as to where we were going to take the class, and we ended up taking it at World Trade 
7, which I think was the Solomon Brothers building. Which is no longer there. Which is no longer there, correct. And so. you actually had another encounter later with that situation. Right? I did. Later when I, you know, eventually um, after that I came into the city and did a bunch of other stuff. But uh, when, after I started working at Frederick Wildman and Sons, uh, September 11th, actually, the night of, uh, the, the previous night, I guess it would have been the 10th, but um, I was there. I was at the top of the World Trade Center at Wendell's in the World at their restaurant, their fine dining restaurant called Wild Blue at the time. Um, so I have the receipt, actually, because we, of course, you know, we were in the wine business. We stayed late and drank good bottles of wine, and, and I was there with some suppliers. And so I have a receipt from September, it says September 11th. It's like 12.31 a.m. or whatever it was. But it's kind of wild to wake up the next day and, and have that whole ha thing happen. I lived at the time right on Thompson Street um, between Houston and Prince. And you could literally see the towers down my block. So my sister woke me up in the morning uh, with a phone call. And I turned on the TV. And then I went down and actually looked out and looked straight down Thompson Street at the, the towers uh, on fire. So it was, it was pretty intense, you know, and I knew a lot of people at the time. Uh, Windows in the World was an account of mine. I was a, a rep at the time, and and uh, it made me, you know, think about what, what they all were doing, uh, and they all were affected in many different ways, you know, so. Did you ever see Kevin uh, since then and kind of talk about that with him? I have, yes. We have, uh, whenever we see each other sort of across a room, we 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 uh connect and and in the, in the beginning we talked about it more than we do now a little bit sure uh, but uh yeah i remember uh, I, I met him a few years ago and i said yeah i remember you were in that coffee ad because he was in this uh, kind of like full page nice spread coffee ad on top of like um you know coffee barrels or bags or something and, and uh he's like yeah because i wasn't from new york so i didn't have a lot of points of reference with him and he said actually that's a that's a big deal for me because that was I can look back in that picture and I can see myself happy. That was kind of like one of the last times Thanks. that I was really happy uh, since that time. And, uh, and you know, it was funny because he had like a full head of hair and he was smiling in that picture. And then when I met him, he had shaved his head and he looked like he'd put on, you know, significant wrinkle. You know, he sure. looked different. He looked like a man that had been through something. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's incredible when you kind of catch people at different moments, either just speaking to them or phot photographically. You know? Well, even today, I mean, I I see some of the people from that were that were working there at the time. I saw Inez Holderness, who is now Inez Rubistello, I who believe. Who's one of the most delightful people I've she ever met. She is one of the most delightful people. I saw her at La Pole a couple of weeks ago, and you know, at the time she was working there, and, and I was hanging out with a lot of them. Susan uh, LaRosa was another one who worked for Polana for a while, and now she's in California with her husband, Patrick. Um, actually, the, the husband of Inez, uh, Stephen Rubistello, was there at the time in, in the cellar. Chris Goodhart, a bunch of people, you know. Um, Chris Goodhart was a good guy. Was a good guy. It's terrible what, what, what happened there, and, you know, God bless him. I loved him to death. He was such a character. He had a real devilishness about him, devilish smile, and just a lot of fun. Good guy. So I guess we should circle back to you. You mentioned you lived in Thompson Street, and you were working at a shop in that area too, right? I was, a little bit further east, more in what's now known as Nolita, um, which is uh, kind of funny because at the time it was not what it is at all. There was two bodegas on either end of the street, you know, one... 
One was a source of cocaine and one was a source of heroin for the local addicts. And we had to make sure that doors were closed so you didn't find little baggies and stuff in the in the hallways. Um, so, so you picked which convenience yeah, store based that's on correct. which? Yeah, no. Well, it wasn't like Snickers bars. And, no, it, yeah, yeah, I don't, it was... It was an interesting place. Now, you know, you go down that street and you can't buy a T-shirt for more than, you know, for less than $300 or something. Right. It's well, so the prices are the same as the heroin. Then. Yeah, so exactly. Pretty much, <laughs> now, now you pick Calvin Klein on one side, there's Imani in the other shop, and you, you pick, yeah. But to, to double back, I so I, after college, I, you know, I went through all this and I started studying wine and I decided I wanted to go to film school of all things. So I came into the city to go to the new school for film and I was looking for a bartending gig. And my sister, who... Uh, was living in Manhattan at the time, uh, said that she had a friend who owned a wine shop in Little Italy is what we, you know, we oh, called okay. it essentially, which is Nolita today. And uh, Keeps getting littler. Yeah, Italy. it keeps getting littler. <laughs> um, so she said he's looking for a manager. Would you want to do that? And I said, sure. And it was, it was a great place. You know, I got to learn a lot more about wine. I got to choose wine. I got to taste a lot of wine with, with reps. And, and uh, at the same time, you know, I had time to make my small independent uh, school films. And, and uh, I actually met uh, Scorsese. He actually grew up in the building that the, uh, that the shop was in. Really? So one day I look up, I look up from, the, from the telephone and I see Katie Couric out with Martin Scorsese in front of the building pointing up, and he was pointing up to He was like, this apartment. place has got a great yeah. wine selection. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so... So that was kind of cool, and I was in the middle of, uh, I was on the phone negotiating some, some lenses that I needed for something I was doing. But anyway, um, from there, you know, I saw these guys coming in, and they were making more money than I was at the time. And you mean I, wine reps, not wine drug dealers? Reps, yeah, no, <laughs> not The drug guy dealers. from the convenience yeah, store right. come over. And... So I had this little side job going on <laughs> as well. No. Uh, yeah, the, the wine reps, they, were, they came in, and I, I realized that I knew probably just as much about wine as they did. As they did, right. So I just, you know, they had, the New York Press, was it called New York Press? I think that's what it was. I don't even know if it still exists. It probably does. Um, you know, there was a lot of, it was, the neighborhood was changing at the time. So there were a lot of sort of artsy people. Coming know, in. Coming in. And what, what time was this exactly? Like um, 90? Or? Yes, probably 91, 92, 93. I did it for like two or three years. Um, so one of them had written this little blurb article about the wine shop and me and New York Press. So I See? Yeah. Uh -huh. uh, so I I cut that out, sent out a resume to a bunch of uh wine distributors and and uh came down to two at the time, uh Frederick Wildman and and Paramount Brands, which doesn't exist anymore, so I guess I made the right choice. Um and my friend who was my rep at the time, Carlos Hubna Arteta, who's Still in the business today and specializes. He's got his own gig going with Spanish and South American wines. Uh, but he convinced me to go to Wildman because he said, you'll be, you know, you'll be somebody there at, at Paramount. You might just be a number and, and you'll learn a lot and, and it's a good environment. And I have to say, I've been there over 15 years. I'm in my 16th year and all that has come true. It's a great company and, and there's, a, there's a great culture of learning and, and family. So... Because Paramount was somewhat bigger. It was somewhat bigger operation, at operation that time. and and uh, you know I don't know a lot about it because I you know you didn't obviously go I didn't there, go, yeah, but um, but I know that what they went out of business or they came in and uh, and Southern Southern bought them, um, but 
so I went to work for Frederick Wildman and Sons, and kind of from the bottom. From the bottom, yeah. I just came and now in. you got the corner office, <laughs> which I've seen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, pretty nice, actually. Yeah, it's, it's a little sloppy at times, but you know, it's because I'm working. You know, that's uh, working hard. Um, yeah, it was great, and I loved being a rep. It was a lifestyle change. You know, I wasn't. Uh, you know, you're not sort of uh, tied to anything. You can run around and do what you want. I had grown up riding motorcycles and I loved classic cars and I'd had some and so I, I went out and bought a brand new BMW motorcycle with uh, I got hard saddlebags that had locks on them and I and I put wine in the saddlebags and I went around and visited all my counts in Manhattan on a motorcycle which was quite an experience I had a few run-ins here and there with some cabs and I used to kick them Oh yeah, yeah. Because they cut me off, and then I go up on next to them because I had big boots on, and, and I give them a whack with my boot. On Did you learn that a little early? Yeah, I learned that. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> hey, I'm gonna call some people. That's it. I pulled the bat out of the back of my. <laughs> actually, one time I this guy pulled over, and I actually got out of the. That's actually happened to me too. I got out of. Uh, I got off the motorcycle, and I figured, what you know, what can he do to me if he right. pulls a bat out? I have a helmet on, you know. Right, right. So right. I think I'm okay. And I had Kevlar on and stuff, right. so you know. But I You're actually like the guy from the Gladiator. That yeah, that's right. Uh, but a crowd actually formed around him because people had had seen him cut me off, and almost he almost you know could have killed me. So uh, I got out of there because they were getting they were the crowd was getting kind of ornery, and and I was like, okay, I'm getting out of here, but. It was uh, it was interesting, and from there I I uh, kept going, and I decided to get into management at some point. Because you figured you, you were still wearing a helmet in the office, and that's the Kevlar, right. and what could the they do to you? The politics of the you office, know? you know, I could take any hit that could, they, <laughs> that could come my way. Burgundy allocations. I'm wearing Kevlar. Yeah, what are you going to say right. now? Burgundy allocations. Oh my goodness, I'm doing that now. Is that so, ever a headache for you? I mean, you got some pretty. It's always a headache. Star you know? producers. I mean, it's a it's a headache you like to have. Um, you know, it's uh, we have a great por portfolio from Burgundy, and you know, the people want want it. But you know, you have to, all I try to do is be fair. You know, be fair to the supplier, be fair to the customers, and be fair to us. And anybody ever give you a hard time, buyers? Yeah, many times. You know, I, I remember somebody once. Uh, Somebody once asked to have a meeting with me, and I'd never met them before. And when I got to the restaurant, he proceeded to take me into a broom closet to talk about Rousseau allocations. That's weird. I have the same memory. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I wonder who that was. <laughs> hey, three vintage uh, vertical ladies. Yeah, that's right. Five any tips you for the youngins. Uh, in a, in a you know. broom closet. <laughs> Small, confined <laughs> space where there's no escape, and you got to look it right in the eye. Uh, you know? That was an experience. I talked about that one for a while. Like, I talked about <laughs> yeah. that one for There's a while. There's still guys at Wildman won't talk to me. Yeah, that. that's yeah. right. Pass me in the hall, not say anything, <laughs> you know? Hey, hi. Oh, you're not going to say hi? Okay, all right, cool. <laughs> it was, you know, it's it's not an easy thing. You just try to be fair, like I say, and said, and, you know. and But, you know, I'm lucky enough that I get to go to Burgundy every year for... And taste through the new vintage. and Taste with Rousseau. Yeah, taste through the Rousseau. Mayo. It's not the yeah. worst. Uh, it's funny though how those are the three names that came to the, from the you know tip of your tongue. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's other, I, you know. No, old, no, I know. I'm you know, old Burgays. You know, yeah, I had a '93 Chevrolet Burgay, just straight up Village. Not not that long ago, two years ago maybe. Right. Yeah, think about it, Village. Jebre. No, I get it. Beautiful. 93 was, uh, you know, I enjoy 93s. It was really good. good. 
good backbone of a city. You, you know. picked up some new people. Linnea Michelle, you picked up yeah, recently. That's a nice addition. Yeah, you know, it's been fun to sort of work on that portfolio. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting uh, thing to develop. You know, I remember when uh, Domaine Lamarche uh, came to our portfolio. You know, we had been talking about bringing them on, and you know. Ned Benedict came up to me and said, "You know, what was the thought process behind this?" And is that true? Yeah, because it's—I uh, think it's really underrated in New York. I like the wines, but every time I say it to like a, a another person, they always give me a hard time for saying that. But I like the wines a lot. I no, think they're, they're beautiful wines. Really I think classic. I think you know. I think the problem was and is. I mean, they're they're a jewel, really, in my book. Um, but the. The previous winemaker, the father, he he made wines that were a little more harder and and more rustic, and took times for to come around. And they're beautiful wines today, you know. Uh, and this was a time where there was a generational change, where the daughter was taking over, and um, it was a moment in time where here you have La Grande Rue, and you know, in the middle of all these other Grand Crus, that um, I've had some old La Grande Rue that was absolutely amazing. So. Uh, I believe to, you because I can see it in there. You to know what see I mean? to see the potential and and what and I, I have to say that that uh, you know she's made some amazing wines since uh, she took over. So I mean her first vintage was oh seven. So it hasn't been that it hasn't many been vintage, that long. vintages and you know and now you have a winery that's basically uh, you know a woman winemaker and and her cousin uh, Natalie is is the marketing. So it's it's pretty much a domain run run by women, which is an amazing thing. And, uh, you know, shows a lot of changes that have occurred in, in Burgundy, you know. Um, so I thought it was a great pickup and a great, and, it, and it's turned out to be great for us because the wines are, they were some of my favorites. So Me, me too, know. at the last uh, last one, which you were nice enough to invite me to the, the tasting. You're that's always right. invited. Well, you know, after the room closet, I, wasn't, <laughs> yeah, I was kind of on the right. shit list for a while. But, uh, you know. I thought they were some of the standouts in the room, but again, whenever I mention it, it's it, it's on the curve where people don't know that yet. Well, you know it's too I mean? bad, you know. And I guess you know it's on us to sort of get the word out a little bit more. But I think the wines speak for themselves, and if people would not bring whatever baggage they have with them and actually just taste the wines for what they are, which is you're asking you know, a lot. Dude. Yeah, I know. What are you doing? That's kind of some, that's some that's, crazy talk. That's a big topic right there because there's a lot of people that that don't do that and and. I really admire the buyers that do. They take, they taste the wine and and they rate it on the quality of the wine, not on whatever impressions the rest of the market has. So. Well, another one that's like that is Favorly. It seems like they're really on the upswing the last few vintages. That's another they producer are. you have. But I mean, it's very different in the sense it's not a small gem-like no, it's thing. It's a fairly big thing. But you know, it seems like that became a, a large part of the portfolio in the wake of Potel selling his. Uh, business and that Correct. had to be an interesting change for you. It was, and it was an interesting transition. You know, we had we had uh, been tasting tasting there for a few years, and and uh, Irwan was here in in town going to uh, Mr. Faberly. Yeah, Mr. Irwan Faberly uh, going to business school at Columbia, and so I had you know we had some drinks with him a few times, and and you know he asked some questions about Patel and what was going on, and we had some conversations and. And uh, the wines certainly have uh, gone f to more of an of an easy style, a little bit different. Because they used to be really hard. They sometimes. used to be really hard really sometimes. Hard. But then again, you know, it's 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 sort of a whole. If you think about Burgundy in in general, there's a there's a shift to having wines that are that are 
or more, uh, I don't want to say accessible, but, but uh, more fruit-driven maybe is a, word, is a word to use than, than have them wait and have them come around. And I don't know if that's good or bad. It's a stylistic change because, you know, for me, I love that old, the old Burgundy that lasts 30 years. And, you know, it's, it's still out there whether or not it's gonna ha- they're going to last. You hear everyone talk about it and they say that, you know, the, the fruit and it still has the structure that's going to last 30 years. You know, it's like the whole Primox thing with the whites and what's going on there. And, and Have you felt brushed back on that at the wholesale yeah, level? I think so. I mean, the good thing about the whites is that they they tend to get drunk um, sure. earlier uh, than, than the reds. So it hasn't been as much of an issue as you would, you would necessarily think. But um, I think, you know, a lot of the winemakers have learned, learned a lot about, you know, they try different things, whether it's lower sulfur or, you know, they're not, you know, they're 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 not working the wines quite as much as they were um you know it's it, there's a lot of theories behind it i sort of like uh i think it's dominique lafon that said um he now uh puts his white wines gives his wines a little bit of oxidation early on almost like a flu shot in order you know that it, it actually helps it to become resistant later on which i think is kind of a fascinating thing so i wonder if that's gonna come to you know be true or not but uh, I think it's a cool concept, and you know, it's 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 funny how modern technology can change things. You know, I you're gonna laugh at this, but I make a little wine every year myself. Just yeah, I go to the local place where you know all sort of all the old Italian guys go, and I buy some grapes, and I I do it more for the process than anything. And one year I had a lot of H2S in my wine, so it stunk like eggs, and. Uh, and I realized, and I, you know, I, I was talking to winemakers at that time, which was great to have that sort of accessibility. And Nicola Potel, in fact, told me once a wine stinks, it always stinks. You're not going to be able to fix it too much, you know. Uh, but uh, I'm, I, what I found was that if you had copper, and you know, all these all, copper actually takes the H2S out of the wine and, and gets rid of the smell. And so this problem became prevalent after we moved away from from copper fixtures and oh, winemaking, okay, okay. which I thought was kind of interesting. That all of a sudden this new problem came came about. Well, that's what pennies are good for. Well, yeah, you know I, I, mean? I threw uh, it was in, in society. I mean, they're really not good for anything. No, they're else. not. I, it's funny because uh, one winemaker told me, in fact, to throw some pennies into the into it so that. The, they'll attach and whatever the molecules i was never very good at, at chemistry yeah me neither i remember one but, time uh, though we took like a i think it was like a dime in chemistry class and we put it in this liquid and it like ate away the outside metal and left the inside metal which was actually different because it's not all one metal you know yeah that, that stuff's crazy you know what i mean my chemistry teacher from high school just passed away because one of my fellow one of my friends from high school sent me his obituary and uh uh, he was a great, great teacher. My AP chemistry, and I ruined one of his, one of his experiments one day. He left it on his desk. That's what that was my. And I went up and I opened this jar, and he just started screaming, saying, "I worked on that for ten years. <laughs> you ruined it." And I, uh, you know, I was sitting there like, "Well, you shouldn't have left it on your desk. It's somebody to walk up and open up." Yeah, exactly. Anyway, I mean, people experiment with stuff. I just uh, it, oh. made, it made me think about my 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 teacher since this was last week. So, uh so then. You know, maybe we should talk a little bit about what else Wildman does. I mean, you know, you got some Austrian Austrian wine, and we do. We have a great Austrian portfolio. I love our Austrian portfolio. Uh, you know, it's brought brought in uh, Monica Caja, Monica Caja selections. Um, 
you know, Monica called me out of the blue many, many years ago. Actually, it's 10 years ago now because this year we had sort of a 10-year celebration with her. And It's been 10 years. Uh, it's wow. been 10 years. And uh, at the time, you know, there was a lot of sort of hype about... Uh, Austrian wine, sort of, sort of an undercurrent. People, you know, you know, Terry Thies was becoming established, and I mean, he had been established already, but it was it seemed to be on the sort of the forefront of of sommeliers' minds at the time. And out of the blue, everybody picked, poured a Gruner for a while. Yeah, everybody. everybody that, that's when I. That's you know. So I, I felt that coming, and and I I picked up the phone one day, and it was uh, Monica on the phone. She said, "Are you interested in Austrian wines?" And I said, "Yes." And so she started bringing samples over, and. The concept was, you know, there was a lot of the, the top wines from the Vacao here already, you know. So she wanted to go out and find wines, uh, top wines from some of the other regions, maybe um, not so, you know, not not always Gruner, although she has got a lot of great Gruners, you know. She's got the top producer from the, the Thurman region. And, Those wines are great. Stottleman. Is founder? Yeah, their founder and the Mandelhoe. And, Is and, that as difficult to allocate as the Roussel? No, it's not as difficult to allocate as the resale, but you know it's got its champions out there, yeah. and, and it's a shame that it's not on a lot of uh, the top lists because I think it deserves a place because it, uh, it's a, they're amazing wines. I've had them with wine people at my house and opened the bottle, and everyone's just flipped out about it. So, Is, how do you approach it when the market doesn't really like catch up to the level of what you're selling, Dean? You know, you just keep trying to expose it to the market. You do find find champions. You know, I think uh, I know that Paul Greco did a one. You know, at Hearth did a page on on Stottleman's wines, and we shipped in some older wines from Stottleman for him. And and uh, so it's nice to have people that have that kind of vision to to move things along. You know. Um, is it important to kind of work with people at the front lines like that to kind of develop those it relationships? Is. It to is get the. Yeah. The, I mean, essentially, brands more more known. Yep. You know what I mean. I mean, there's no doubt about it. You need you need you need heroes out there to, to try to move these things. Guys forward. with Kevlar so, vests. Kevlar vests. That's right. <laughs> and you know what and else? Helmets. What other parts of the portfolio are you guys working on? You got some Alsace wines. And- we do have some Alsace wines. <laughs> Funny you bring that up. Um, we carry Hugo, which is uh, an amazing uh, family and an amazing winery. It's been around since. She's 1639, so, you know, 12 generations. I think they might even be on that to their 13th generation, and they make some amazing wines. You know, I don't know, a lot of this, uh, they were an intricate part of the development of the Grand Cru system, but then they walked away from it because they felt it was getting too diluted. They pretty much wrote the laws for 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 uh, VT and, and SGN. Um, and in fact, if you're in Alsace, they call it the Hugel Law. Oh, they do? They do. They you ever go to Alsace? I go to Alsace now and then. Do you have any we, connections over there? Yeah, we happen to have another producer from Alsace, uh, Domaine Francois Bohr, um, and they have a very delightful daughter that uh, that I married. Um, <laughs> How did that come about? Well, she she had sort of had a love of the United States early, and she had come over as an exchange student in high school, and then wanted to come back. And her parents had met um, uh, a woman named Lely Heron, who uh, has a brand called Heron Wines uh, from California. At the time when that they knew her, she didn't have that brand. She she owned a restaurant with her husband in Denmark, and and uh, 
and they, they sold their wines to this restaurant, so they become friends. So they called her, and they said, my daughter you know, wants to come to the States. So she came to the States and worked for Laley, traveling the country, selling heron wines. And at the time, we carried heron wines, so she would come into the marketplace. So I would work with her and say, hey, you want to you know, ride on the back of my motorcycle and go, yeah, yeah. go around we'll kick town? kick some cabs together? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Put on some boots? And, uh, and that's sort of how it started. And then she decided she wanted to come to New York. And, and so she came to New York and worked for us. And we were both seeing other people at that time. And then uh, actually a month after 9-11, because we, we were at a benefit uh, dinner at, uh, at Beacon, the sister restaurant of... Uh, of Windows on the World, and uh, that was the night of our first kiss. Um, so it was October 11th. Not bad from a guy from Stytown, huh? No, you know. International relations. That's right. And now I have two kids, and it's amazing that they're going to, you know, they they spend their summers there. They're bilingual. They, they're on the tractor with their grandfather up in the vineyards. It's an amazing thing that, that I can't believe. We got married in this little village of Turkheim overlooking, you know, with the, the Vosges Mountains as a backdrop with the brown ground crew looking down at us and we had 50 americans and 50 french and and we the cake came out at three o'clock in the morning it went from four in the afternoon until well actually we when the bakery we get we went to get croissants at six in the morning it was an amazing party so and it was a lot of fun your kids maybe might take up some winemaking sometime or well, you know, you never know. Uh, my my brother-in-law, Virginie's uh, brother, is taking over for for her father, and he's got a boy and a girl. And he always jokes that you know, if one of my kids are stupid, maybe one of your kids will take over the wine winery. But they will, you know, the with the laws and the inheritance laws in in uh, in France, they will own property and own part of these ground the ground crew brand probably and lease it to their cousins for the domain, which it sort of weirds me out in a, in a way that, you know, here I am, I grew up on, in Stuyvesant Town, and now I have kids that are going to own property in Alsace and the Grand Cru. So it's, it's really cool, and, you know, my kids are great, so I couldn't be happier. That's kind of amazing what the wine world can do. It know, is. In that kind of way. You know, I mean, it opened up so much for me, you know, traveling. You know, like I said, I get to go to Burgundy. I go to Italy. I'm going to Bordeaux next week, um, you know, so. Oh, thanks for the invite. Appreciate yeah. it. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But what's the wholesale outlook look like these days? I mean, how has it changed over the years? What's going on with wholesale these days from your chair? Um, you know, New York's an amazing place. And and the great thing about it, the great thing about it is, uh, is, there's so much selection. There's a lot of small, small and medium-sized guys in, in New York, and, and you can get any wine you want anywhere. Um, uh, and that there's, which is an amazing thing, and that's being challenged right now a little bit. I don't know if you've heard about At Rest, and uh, two of the big guys in town are, are trying to uh, get uh, a law passed in Albany where... Uh, everyone would have to own their own warehouse and run their own warehouse in order to exist. Right now we use a lot of, uh, a lot of the small and medium-sized guys use warehouses in New Jersey. Um, and if they get that law passed, it'll wipe out a lot of the small people and they're looking to gain market share and knock, knock people out. And, and what it's going to do for the consumer and for the sommeliers, it's going to knock selection down, which, is, which would be a shame. So, 
You know, this is like a law that's maybe going to pass through, or what's the story? Well, it's it's you know, we, there's an alliance, a whole fine wine wholesaler alliance that I belong to, and and Skarnik, Polana, Verity. I mean, there's a bunch of them, Winebow, uh, T. Edwards, and you know, we've been fighting it, and so far we've held it off. It's been a couple of years, and it's rearing its head again this year, and they just won't stop. You know, so uh, we're. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna do a, a tasting to make ourselves more well known as an alliance. So we're, so we're all gonna come together as a group. It's, it's a cool thing, you know. And I think, uh, you know, the wholesale business is thriving, and and we're all doing well. And you know, it's you know, the recession hurts a lot of businesses. And and it, although it took its toll, I think on some of the wine, but you know, some of the wine business, if you were smart and you were controlled your inventory and. You had some diversity in terms of price points and, and regions. Uh, people are still drinking, you know. They just, they, they might not drink as expensive a bottle, but they're still drinking and it seems to be coming back and and the collectors have come back to the table, which is nice to see. And and so uh, while, I, you know, we're not recession proof, I'd say we're recession resistant, which is a good thing as an industry. Have we seen over the course of years the DI model get more and more prevalent for wines that aren't Bordeaux? In other words, people saying like, yeah, this is what I want. You know, I'm going to go into the tasting and order five cases, and then the wholesaler says, okay, well, I'm going to put in that order then, now that I have them all collected, as opposed to buying 100 cases and then saying, hey, you guys wanted to buy any? You know, like, has that focused inventory a little bit more clearly on the needs of the market? You know, I think that's that would be wholesaler by wholesaler, an individual mm-hmm. sort of thing. I think uh, pre-sales have become a little more difficult uh, the past few years because people don't want to commit until uh, until the wine's in or they don't know how the press is going to react to them. Oh, I see. Um, you think people are waiting to see what, what happens in terms of general yeah. reaction before they make their stake? I think so. I mean, it was always sort of that way, but, um, you know, I think that that it's it's become less than than it was, you know. It's definitely, pre-sales are a little bit harder, but then a vintage like 09 and 2010 come along and you have banner pre-sales, you know. It's, it's, it's market-driven, sort of. So, but it's, it's all fun, you know. It is. It's, uh, it's an exciting business to be in. I mean, and like I said, it's opened up a world of culture to me and, and, you know, we could be, I could be selling, Widgets, you know, we're not only selling an agricultural product, so you learn about anything, everything from chemistry to to uh, to business, you know. So, you know, business, you learn a lot through the years in business. You know, growing up as I did through, sort of through the business, starting out as a rep and moving into management, you know, you learn a lot from different people. You know, I learned a lot about Burgundy from Roger Bomber, who used to be a, a worker, Frederick Wildman, who's a master of wine and, Pretty much introduced me and gave me my 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 base in Burgundy, which is a great thing. Um, Richie Cacciato and Rocco Lombardo that, that run Frederick Wildman uh, as a whole company now. You know, Richie just Richie just uh, he he's got a way about him when he walks into a room and sits down. He he looks at the big sort of picture and takes his time and thinks things out, which I do now. Which maybe before I would have reacted a lot quicker. Rocco has a vision for the future. It's pretty amazing, and he's he's a nonstop worker. So he just he it's always about moving forward, which is a, a great thing. Um, one of my managers, that growing you know sort of through the years, was Peter Asher, and he taught me a lot about the business and and pricing and making money. You know, because 
you know, it can be very romantic, this business. We're all sitting around swirling wine and drinking wine, but in the end, it's about uh, making money because you have to stay in business. So learn to price things right and learn to, to, to sell things at a price where it'll move or, or, you know, all those different strategies. Is pricing locally different than pricing nationally? Like, do you have to think to yourself, like, hey, I'm going to do this in national. Does that mean I'm going to approach the pricing differently? Um, yeah, I mean, there is, a, there is that aspect because we hand, you know, we, we're sort of a two-headed beast because we own a distributor in New York and New Jersey, um, and then the rest of the company we sell to other distributors. So um, we, ha- we have a portfolio uh, that's sort of, uh, that we handle nationally, and then we have the portfolio that, that we essentially get from our national company, but then we have a wide diverse portfolio because we're a true distributor that we bring in from all over the world. Um, so the margins are different on both angles, you know, and you have to be wary that you're not going to price things in New York that are going to, that are going to affect the market, especially with the, with the internet today, affect the market in, in, in Wisconsin or California or what have you. So was that kind of a change, like the rise of like wine searcher and people being able to call up retail stores throughout the world and say, Hey, send me this because I can see it online that you have it. Yes. Most definitely. It's definitely changed my approach when I'm going to see somebody. I always go on Wine Searcher to see where the pricing stands because you know that's what they're going to do. So, um, yeah, when you're walking into a meeting, you have to know where you are in Wine Searcher because it's the first thing they bring up. You know, there's this whole thing with virtual inventory as well, which isn't the best thing, I don't think, where people are putting your whole inventory, you know, everything that you sell on, and they're not buying it. They just right. put it out there. So. And then when they get the call, they're like, oh, we don't have that, but we can sell you this instead. Like that oh, game in the system. That game in the system, or they, they order from you, but, uh, you know, they'll order of, of, uh, six bottles or whatever. After the order is placed. Or. After, after the order is placed. But the, the problem with that is that usually they're, they're priced very aggressively. And I don't know if it's a fair playing field for the, for the customers that are out there that are actually buying inventory, but... That's a debatable thing, you know. I don't know. It's a, it's a, it exists, so it's something that we have to be aware of, I think. Well, at so. the very least, it's a perspective we don't often hear about. I appreciate you being on the show today, John. Thanks. My pleasure. John Seller, Frederick Wildman, Director of Sales over there. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.